Hello everyone, and welcome back to The World's Last Night. My name is James. Today we're in chapter 13 of Exodus, and we're going to see the Israelites start heading out from Egypt. Verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and animal, is mine. This is a recurring theme. Um, it hearkens toward the tithe, the first fruits. Uh, God does require the first and best belongs to him. So that's why our tithes is what we pay first before we count our expenses and we give it to the church. Now, we've already seen like the, the thing with Cain and Abel. Um, Abel's uh, sacrifice was accepted, we think, because his heart was right. And likewise, he gave the first fruits, not just some, but the first. And so the whole thing where it says consecrate, consecrate basically means to set apart for good use. So God is saying, you need to set apart every firstborn male to me and the firstborn uh, from everyone among the Israelites, both man and animal, it's his. So it has to be dedicated to the Lord. Um, now, sometimes the word can mean sacrifice in this regard. It doesn't. And in fact, actually, we're going to see a little bit later on that he offers substitutes for certain animals. So some animals, yes, the firstborn is sacrificed and other things like humans, the firstborn male, we're going to find he gives, um, he basically says you can, you can give a sum of money. And for the unclean animals like donkeys, he's going to say you can sacrifice a clean animal in its stead. Now, if you think about this, sacrificing an animal is a great act of faith because say you have two cows and the first one is born and you are required by this law to give that one to the temple to be sacrificed. You're basically saying that you have faith in God that your two animals are going to have more babies, that you're going to have more baby cows. So it is a great act of faith. And yet God owns everything, and he only asks for asks for that one thing. Or in our case, in Christianity, he asks still for the tithe. But then on top of that, um, he does ask that we be generous with our money. And we'll get more into offerings and all that in the New Testament. Let me continue before I ramble too much. Verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day when you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, for the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. Nothing leavened may be eaten. Eaten Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of Can Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers that he would give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you must carry out this ritual in this month. For seven days, you must eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there's to be a festival to the Lord. Okay, what I love about Christianity and two of my favorite theologians, G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis, I'd say, well, no, both of them, really. Um, what they love about Christianity is that it is a joy-filled religion. It is not like Buddhism, where you are trying to deny yourself, deny, 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 deny. Now, some things in Christianity you do, but one of those things is not necessarily um, joy and festivals and emotions. I, I said before, I'm a proponent of Stoicism, but I'm, I'm a proponent of a Stoicism in the vein of Seneca, who, who did think that emotions had its place. And so in this passage, we see that 
yeah, there's a time to you only eat unleavened bread, but on the seventh day, you're supposed to have a festival, which means there's lots of eating and drinking. And we remember the first miracle Jesus did was actually at a wedding celebration. He made wine, and those celebrations would last upwards of a week. Um, so Christianity is joy-filled. In the Narnia series, there's some weird stuff. <laughs> For example, Santa Claus is in it, or Saint Nick, and uh, he, he brings gifts to the children. Then there's also really sort of like a Dionysus character that shows up. It's really strange. Um, but Dionysus was a false god, a Greek god, and was the god of wine and celebration. And I think the reason C.S. Lewis adds that kind of character into the story that just like celebrates um, is because that is something that Christians are allowed to indulge in. If you're a Muslim, you're not allowed to drink um, alcohol at all. But as a Christian, you are. All you're asked to do, though, is to be temperate, which means you don't get drunk. But you can still celebrate and enjoy it. We're not called to deny um, creation. Creation is a good thing. God made it. It's a good thing. What we are called to do is to not pervert it. That means use it for un, uh, unintended uses. We use it for the use God um, desired us to use it for. So for alcohol, it would be to celebrate and enjoy. Um, for sex, it's for marriage to enjoy. But you can see both those things can be perverted from their intended uses for evil. I think the same could be said of even, like, let's take a weird, you know, more modern thing like firearms. Firearms can be used for lots of joy, for sport, for competition. Um, it can be used for protection, so it can be used in defense. But at the same time, it can be used to murder someone or to do something evil. It would be a perversion of the design or the intent behind. So all that to say, um, Christianity doesn't strip you of joy. It rather just puts limitations on creation to where you don't exercise evil upon yourself or others. Okay, but in heaven, uh, we're also told there's going to be a great feast. Sorry, I'm still on that. I just, I love that aspect about Christianity. Okay, here we go. Unleavened bread is to be eaten for those seven days. Nothing leavened may be found among you, and no yeast may be found among you in all your territory. On that day, explain to your son. This is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Let it serve as a sign for you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead, so that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. Keep his statute at its appointed, yeah, statute at its appointed time from year to year. So, Later on in Judaism, this passage is going to become somewhat perverted. <laughs> Interesting, I was just talking about that. Not, I don't know if it always was, but by the time of Jesus, it is. So it says, let it, let it serve as a sign for you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead. Talking about um, these traditions, talking about the law that God's going to hand down. You know, it says, so that the law... Of the Lord may be in your mouth. Um, what they ended up making were these things called phylact phylactrians, I think it was called. 
man, I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. I didn't write it down, but it's in Matthew. We could maybe flip to it. It's Matthew 25. Let me see if I can find it real quick. I think it's Matthew 25 or 23. It could be Matthew 25, 23. But in any case, it's basically a leather box. And this leather box, the Jews would put on their forehead or they'd wear on their hands. And it would contain uh, basically the law. Um, so basically scripture. So they would like literally wear scripture on their forehead, <laughs> strapped to them, or um, or on their hands. All right, I'm almost there. Matthew 24, 23. Let's see. Blind Pharisees. It's all the woe to you passages. Nothing but an oath. Here it is. Matthew 23, verse 5. They do everything to be observed by others. They enlarge their phylacteries. Yeah, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by the people. This is Jesus talk, saying basically like, woe to hypocrites. Um, and really is targeting the Pharisees that lived at the time, which was a Jewish religious sect that was really big on the law and like showing themselves as being righteous without actually being righteous. And so he basically says they enlarge their phylacteries. So these boxes, these leather boxes, they make bigger and bigger ones on their forehead and on their hands to like show how righteous they are. Well, I think a cursory or in-depth reading of the passage we just read about let it serve as a sign on to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead so that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. It's, I think it's absolutely a metaphor. And... You know, what good is having scripture on a box on your forehead if you don't know it? I think that is the actual point that, that Moses is getting at here is, and the Lord is speaking to Moses, that the law should be in your heart and ready to be spoken by your mouth. So that's where scripture should reside in you, not physically on your hand or on your forehead. That doesn't actually help you. And um, you know, as I said, people perverted that to try, try to show how righteous they were. You know, got to have a bigger Bible. That might be what the modern day is or wear a larger cross. Um, just people were really bad at that in Jesus' time. So, okay, we'll move on. Um, keep the statue at its point in time from your dear. All right, verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you are to present to the Lord every firstborn male of the womb. All firstborn offspring of the livestock you own that are males will be the Lord's. You must redeem every firstborn of a donkey with a flock animal. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. It's pretty violent. However, you must redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the future, when your sons ask you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of the man to the firstborn of the livestock. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. So he actually gives paints a picture there. This is to, to the dedication of the firstborn is to remember that God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt by destroying and taking the firstborn of the Egyptians. That was like the final plague 
And so having their firstborn dedicated or uh, redeemed is a sign and a symbol and a remembrance of what God did for the Israelites. So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead, for the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. Now back to that hand and forehead thing. There's going to be in the end times, it's, you know, if you go to Revelation, John, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, John is exiled to the island of Patmos. He's writing the book of Revelation as he has a vision of heaven and the end of times. Part of that book is not end times. The first part of that book is actually present John day, but then the latter part of it is the end of times when Jesus comes back. Well, apparently around that time, there's going to be an Antichrist who is going to be able to do false miracles and lead many people astray to worship him as a false god, kind of like Pharaoh. And uh, one of the things that people are going to do that adhere and follow and worship this false god, this man, um, who has the ability to do false miracles by the power of Satan, um, one of the things is they're going to have uh, take up a sign on either their forehead or their hand or both. So there's going to be a, a great perversion of this ritual um, at that time. And who knows, maybe that's not physical. Maybe it's sort of like this, where they're going to have some sort of false scripture memorized and in their hearts and on the tips of their tongue. All right, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. All right, so he's sending them out, but he's not sending them to the land of the Canaanites the quickest way. Why? Because on that way, Egypt has several uh, modern-day terms. You can call them barracks or military bases. And basically, he says that if the Israelites have to face war, they're, gonna, they're not going to. They don't have the heart for it, which is something that God does. He, he promises that he's not going to uh, let us be tempted beyond our ability to overcome um, so he's not going to let them be tempted with, with being, you know, doubting, I guess, to that point. And instead it says, uh, verse 18. So he led the people around towards the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. You guys remember that, right? We read about Joseph. He wasn't buried. His bones were left. And uh, he told his descendants that they had to take him whenever they, they left Egypt. They set out from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Now, archaeologically, we don't know where Etham or Etham is. Just fun fact. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day, in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. So the Israelites are being led physically by the presence of God as being manifested in a cloud during the day, which is great because that keeps the sun off them, and fire by night, which is great because it lets them see their way. So that's um, another huge miracle. And you would think it would convince these people not to turn from God. They've seen so much, so many miracles. God has taken care of them. But unfortunately, in the desert, they're going to face a lot of uh, temptation to turn from God. 
I wouldn't even really call it temptation. They're just weak faith. Um, that's the end of chapter 13. We'll pick it up in 14. Uh, you thought maybe Pharaoh was actually going to let them go, but as we find out in chapter 14, he's coming after them, changing his mind. So until then, this is James with The World's Last Night.